Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about capacity to consent to sexual behavior for adults with intellectual disabilities. Scott, I know that this is a content area that you're an expert in, so let's start by talking about what capacity to consent to sexual behavior even means for people with disabilities. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a really complex um, issue. So the first thing I think is important to know is that intimate relationships, sexual relationships between individuals with intellectual disabilities is not illegal. In a, in a, um, intimate relationships between someone who does not have an intellectual disability and someone who does are not illegal either. Although <laughs> I might have a little bit more concern there because of vulnerabilities, but they're not inherently illegal. Legality is only really relevant if the person is under the legal age of consent of the state that they're in or has been determined not to have capacity to consent by a court. And the capacity to consent in this context, what we're talking about is this, as you asked, this consent to sexual activity. And what's interesting about this is different states have different standards around sexual consent capacity. So New York, for example, has the morality standard. The person's got to be able to understand or mentally capable of understanding the social mores of sexual behavior. Um, They also must be capable of understanding the sort of non-criminal penalties like being ostracized or stigmatized that society may impose for conduct it labels as sexually immoral. New Jersey only requires that the person must understand the sexual nature of an act and that the person's decision to engage in the sexual behavior is voluntary. So there's no real requirement in New Jersey, at least, that he or she understands the potential risks and consequences of the behavior. California is a little different. Positive cooperation in an act or attitude pursuant to an exercise of free will, quote, uh, the person must act freely and voluntarily and have knowledge of the nature of the act or transaction involved. Um, California's sort of standard is somewhat consistent with the standards that, uh, because there's no universally, like, universal criteria for whether somebody has capacity or not. Courts typically look to experts. And as you know, I've testified in several trials uh, with this, actually one most recently on a capacity to consent issue. So different states have different standards. Given that, a person can have capacity to consent in one state, but not another. So it's really dynamic. And it's really helpful to think of capacity as a state, not a trait. So one doesn't just have capacity or not. It's a state. So there's lots of different things that can affect capacity. So what I hear you saying is it's complicated and it's not even consistent. So it varies from state to state and it even can vary from from moment to moment, moment depending on a, a person's circumstances or what might be going on for them at the time. Yeah. I mean, when you assess somebody's uh, capacity to consent, it's technically in that moment that you're assessing them that they have that capacity. But in most states, so when people say, you know, what's the legal age of sexual consent? Well, it's not as simple as this age because various states have different ages, uh, some that people would be shocked about. But generally, after age 18, like 18 and above, typically individuals are legally presumed to have the freedom, ability, and right to make choices related to their person and property. That's generally what's understood. And those rights can only be removed by a specific court order. They'd have to specifically remove those rights. 
So there's an assumption then that people have capacity unless there's been a determination that they don't. Yeah, that's a really good point. So the idea is, because this can go to a point where people say, well, you know, we know that individuals with intellectual disabilities, particularly uh, women, particularly those who have a coexisting disorder or disability, particularly those who may be limited in their ability to communicate, are at much greater risk, just in general at greater risk. All individuals with intellectual disabilities are, the data shows that that's the uh, highest risk group among all individuals with disabilities, and that group is at higher risk than the general population. So given that, we understand that they're maybe at greater risk, but we also have to balance that with people's rights. And this idea that, oh, all of a sudden, like, so should we just do this a priori, you know, in advance to to see if they can uh, have, you know, capacity to consent so that way we're cool? Well, one, it doesn't align very well with the state versus trade. And also, you know, that becomes that sort of slippery slope. And I'll probably say that a couple of times in this podcast where, you know, we, we have to presume the right that uh, people with intellectual disabilities, as and I think you said it, have capacity to consent unless there's a concern that they might not. And then we would do an assessment. So... Um, sorry, we're going to say something. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that that's interesting because I feel like I've had cases before where there is an assumption that's the opposite, that if someone has an intellectual disability or based on their IQ or, you know, one or two criteria that's available, that sometimes multidisciplinary teams might make the assumption that because a person has a disability, they don't have consent. But what I hear yeah, you saying totally is, right, it's, it's, <laughs> and I understand that. So it's backwards. And I think that that's what's so important about shifting our thinking and making sure we understand what people's rights are, but also not then assuming that a crime couldn't happen against somebody with a disability because they still have the right to consent, which means they have the right to not consent. So all of those things sort of coming together and, you know, this sort of big confusing, as you mentioned at the beginning, complicated mixture. So I just think it's interesting how I think I've heard teams think about it versus what is legal and how much it varies from state to state uh, throughout the country. Sure, for sure. Legal, ethical, you know, want, trying to do the right thing. And, you know, MDTs are, are generally trying to protect people. So it's not, it's not people are saying, let's, you know, infringe on people's rights. A couple things to consider, though, in terms of, you know, assessing capacity. Um, they really should be free of moral judgments um, about a lifestyle. So like, for example, judgments about somebody's sexual partner on their gender, the number of partners over time, historically, you know, those standards vary depending on who you ask, uh, the number of people that you're engaging in sexual activity at one time, and those genders and so forth. While, um, or whether somebody, you know, uh, understands safe sex, but understanding safe sex and practicing safe sex shouldn't really be confused. So we have to be thoughtful when we're making assessments like, well, if this person's having sex with multiple people multiple times or multiple people at the same time, it doesn't necessarily mean they don't have capacity. Those might not be choices that you make, but those are choices that uh, adults can make, if, you know, given that this assumption of capacity. The, one of the major things that I, I hear a lot is people say, well, you know, they, they look sort of confused. So people with intellectual disabilities, they have sex, but what if they have a kid? Who's going to take care of the kid? So that's really interesting. So it depends on the mood I'm in will be how I respond. I could respond thoughtfully or I could respond cynically, but my, 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 I'll give you my thoughtful response. My thoughtful response is that we have to be careful of this ability to parent standard. If we're going to ask the question, can this person parent somebody before we deem them capable of having engaging in sexual behavior? Then there's like, I don't know, in the current state we're in right now, there's 
probably 9,000 parents who, uh, of kids that are in foster care who really at, at any given moment didn't have a ability to parent. So that's a real, told Joe's going to use it again, slippery slope. <laughs> well, and it's the, it's putting two things together that don't actually like really go together. Even right. if our brains can sort of see the cause that's and right. effect of, well, if someone has sex, you know, they should have capacity to parent. So, but those are really two entirely different things, different ideas, and people are sort of mixing them together. They are. Yeah. You would say that somebody's preference. <laughs> um, what's really unique about sexual consent capacity, it's, it's different than others like medical consent right so like for a medical treatment you have time to talk with people about it people can give you different ideas uh there's lots of opportunities maybe to discuss pros and uh, pros and cons with sexual (laughs) decisions you know they're done alone typically without the opportunity or desire to consult with others and you know that situation really can tend to require rapid response and there's really no surrogate decision maker for you know, sexual relations. So decisions that are made more like in the moment and you're not getting a lot of different opinions about most of the time, especially with this population, as we know, people so rarely even have conversations about, you know, what is sex? What does that look like? The, the lack of sexual education, I imagine, comes in to this as well with people's understanding of, of what sex is, what's okay, not okay, and even the right that they may feel they have to either consent or not consent to activity as well. Yeah, for for sure. And I think some of those plays into so there's no universally accepted sort of criteria for what whether somebody has capacity or not. The courts typically look to experts, but the most widely accepted legal criteria fall along these things of what we would call knowledge, rationality and voluntariness. And if you'd like, I can dive into some of those for you. So I think understanding each of those is going to be important because is it that someone has to have all three? Do they need to just have one? Like, you know, sort of how is how are those determinations made as generally as you can? Because, of course, everything's very individualized and specific. But understanding how each of those plays in and what kind of determination or what, excuse me, what goes into those determinations, I guess. Yeah, it, it's... It's right. It's a really difficult thing to say. You have to have one, not the others. It's it's kind of it's it's really a, a judgment call. It's an assessment, if you will. But let's start with knowledge. So knowledge is really like elements of sort of knowledge. You know, your your capacity area of knowledge and sexual consent capacity is like basic basic knowledge of sexual activities or behaviors, basic knowledge of the difference between private versus public, knowledge of birth control, basic knowledge of STIs and avoidance and things like that. So other ways to think about it is, does the person understand the social legal constraints on time, place, and context to engage in sexual behaviors, Um, understand that certain sexual activities are against the law and have consequences? Do they understand uh, things about pregnancy and sexually transmitted infection prevention? And again, understanding it doesn't mean that you necessarily will practice it. So the fact that somebody's not practicing it doesn't necessarily mean they don't have it. And then really, do they understand the physical, legal, ethical responsibilities associated with pregnancy and parenting? I'm already thinking of cases right now. Uh, But operationally, if we want to define it, like, so what would be the questions we would ask? Uh, You know, are they able to identify various sexual behaviors, including intercourse, as well as potential outcomes of sexual activity, including STIs, pregnancy, and parenting? Are they able to identify public versus private places? Uh, That can be done in a variety of different ways. Are they able to identify appropriate places for sexual behaviors? Identify illegal sexual behavior? Are they able to describe or discuss the consequences of parenting? So those are some of the things that we would see um, 
in terms of the knowledge factors. And then if we really wanted to dive into sort of like the cognitive functions, we could get into semantic memory and executive functioning and things like that. But so something we, you said yeah. was interesting though, because it's, do they understand, cause you mentioned parenting a couple of times. And again, it's the understanding of it versus the ability to do it, which goes back to what we talked about a little while ago with people. So understanding it, yes. And then, but people that may be in part why people sort of get those yeah, we don't have to take, blurred. Yeah, we don't have to take that leap that just by understanding it is not enough. Well, in that sense, it kind of is enough. The fact that they're able to do it or not, that would get more to when we get into rationality, sort of executive function. So I'll, I'll get into that in a second. Uh, would a case example be helpful for sort of? I, I think so. Well, and I was going to ask you because I think that's why people are confused because like you mentioned, it's complex. And then it sort is. of we're like, well, it is about, it's not about parenting, but it is about a little bit, right? So some of those things kind of go back and forth. So I think I think a case example could be helpful here. Sure. So we'll use Amy. She's uh, age 19, IQ of 32. She doesn't cook. She doesn't ride a bus. She really can't do basic reading, writing, um, or math. She's not able to work. She doesn't know how to manage money. She's not able to vote independently. She speaks at around a nine or 10 year old level um, and really doesn't have a really good reading level at all. Um, she did attend high school, but she wasn't qualified for a diploma. She had some idea of what sexual intercourse was, including that it could result in pregnancy, but her understanding was about the same level as first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes a baby in a baby carriage. So she didn't understand that sex could result in disease. She didn't really understand, you know, I, in, in this particular case, I remember asking, and I'll, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically, so, you know, if you're going to have a baby, how does that how do you have a baby? And she said, you have the baby. And then I said, well, how do you take care of the baby? Gerber was the response. So you could see there's some knowledge deficits there. Um, the next sort of element is this idea of rationality. So we talk about knowledge, rationality, and voluntariness. Rationality um, is, in, in terms of sexual consent capacity, we would say, are you oriented to person, time, place, and event, right? Know the difference between fantasy, reality, true, false. This idea of like how your ability to report events with some accuracy falls in there. Critically evaluate, weighing pros and cons, making knowledgeable decisions. The problem with these is like, okay, we need to operationally define then knowledgeable and critically evaluate. So basically, how do we, again, operationally define it? What might be some of the questions? Well, are they oriented to person, time, and place? You know, are, Can they describe the difference between fantasy and reality, truth and lie? Um, are they able to accurately respond to questions regarding consequences of sexual behavior? So, you know, you, you would might ask if you have sex with somebody, unprotected sex, what, what could arise from that? And they're able to describe it. Uh, are they able to describe the process for making choices regarding sexual activity? And you can see some bleed over, you will, into the area of voluntariness here. And then um, other things to think about, like, you know, IQ is one variable, coexisting um, comorbidities that may impair the individual's judgment, perception, or thinking all play a role here as well. I'll give you, oh, go ahead. Well, so, so there's, it seems like there's a lot, a lot of layers to it. So it's, you, you talked about the three main categories and then sort of determining those and a lot even goes into each of those steps. So it's, it sounds like it's, like I mentioned, individualized, but I also like, because one of the things that we talk about often in, you know, I'm thinking about like, you know, training and working with multidisciplinary teams is not letting any one of those pieces of information define the whole person. And that's what I really like about the assessment you're talking about is we're looking at 
people from sort of all angles get you know thinking about sure iq and um, reading level and language development and all those different things but it's looking at the whole person and what they're able to do um, and not just what they can't do so it's a, a matter of assessing the person as a as a whole and not making a determination that a person cannot consent because of their iq alone for example yeah, no, really great point, Stacey. Yeah, it's, it's multifaceted at the end of the day. It's a, like sort of a clinical judgment whether you believe somebody has capacity or not. Sometimes it's clearer than others. Um, I'll give you an example of rationality where somebody, uh, we might say, doesn't have kind of meet that, that standard. So this is Cynthia. She's 30, IQ of around 45. She testifies as follows in response to the question whether she resisted or not. And this was her response. If I didn't let him do it, he would just stand there and wouldn't let me get anything done. And I didn't want him to stand there all day and not let me get anything done for I was busy. And I told him I was busy and I had work to do and that I didn't have time. And I didn't want him to stay there all day for I wouldn't get anything done. So you start to see there, I know this is just sort of one excerpt. You start to see there that there's a disconnect between that rationality for resisting or not resisting, engaging voluntarily or not engaging voluntarily based on I had stuff to do so that as long as I have sex with them, I can go get my stuff done, starts to put into question sort of that, that, it, that rationality piece. So you can see how there's some, if I'm understanding correctly, you can see how there's some connection between, well, if I don't do this, then I can't get the other stuff done. So that sort of like rational decision-making? Yeah, we would call that transductive reasoning, actually. And we see that in young children where a child might declare, you know, it can't be Sunday, we didn't go to church because they connect church and Sunday and those two things are related. So they're making, they're making connections between two unrelated events, exactly like you're saying. So that kind of speaks to that. It doesn't mean, I guess on one way you could say it's somewhat irrational, not rational to think that way. So that's where it starts to come into question. Okay. But one of the, well, I would say one of the more powerful ones, and this should make sense as we talk through it, is voluntariness. Voluntariness is this in sexual con the consent capacity is, you know, the person has the ability to take self-protective measures against unwanted intrusions, abuse, and exploitation. But that gets tricky too, because sometimes somebody may have a physical disability where they can't. So that's not just a, as you were been pointing out all along, and I think it's great, is that's not a solely defining piece. But this is a big one. Understands that they have the right to say no and can say no. That's a big one. And I don't just mean the physical ability to say no, but knowing they can say no. Understanding that they can refuse to have sex, understanding that no means stop, understanding power differentials, understanding the concept of consent. So you could see in the previous example of Cynthia, not only was there some rationality issues, she, um, we might start to, that might start to creep into some of this voluntariness. So what are the questions we ask? How do we operationally define some of this? Do they have the ability to say no? Are they able to communicate no vocally or non-vocally? Are they able to remove themselves from the situation at hand, indicating a wish to say, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. Again, that gets going to get complicated for somebody who uh, isn't vocal. Are they able to describe how they would apply no in a physical or sexual context? Um, are they able to identify what being exploited may mean for them? Are they able to call for help? Those are some of the sort of questions that we would consider. Other things maybe... You know, do they tell you that they enjoy the activity or not? Do they engage in it willfully? Do they make repeated attempts to engage in it on their own? Do they try to escape from it? So those are all sort of pretty good um, indicators, questions that you would want to assess. And and I have a, another example for you. This is actually interesting. It's two, two best friends, Robert, who's 23 with an IQ of 80, and Tim, who's 24 with an IQ of 75. 
One of the victims answered, yep, when asked if he agreed to have sex with the defendant freely and voluntarily. And the other one agreed he voluntarily, when asked, did you voluntarily do this, did the acts with the defendant? So the testimony included that the defendant had befriended both victims, they were best friends, and explained to one of the victims that friends kiss, go to bed together, and engage in sex. Defendant also told the victim about the cave, anal sex, explaining what it meant and that it was cool and would feel good. Defendant initiated the cave, directing one of the victims to take off his clothes, lie in the bed, and do as directed. He also told one of the victims not to tell. Over time, one of the victims just got used to it and cooperated, quote unquote. The other victim testified he was confused and had mixed feelings when the defendant showed him pornographic videos and asked him to do sexual things. That victim didn't know whether it was right to stay or go during those times. He agreed, he voluntarily responded yes, did the acts with the defendant because he was told. So you can see really clearly here that he doesn't understand he can say no. So in this particular case, I would say not just that alone, but that's a pretty powerful piece to talk about, like uh, possibly not having capacity here because you don't know you can say no. That's a that's probably one of the bigger ones. And I think that that's the one that people probably think about the most and then maybe don't think about the other two categories that you started with because I'm thinking about cases that I've had and so those are some of the questions that people consider when they're thinking about whether or not this was, you know, a criminal act, whether or not someone consented or whether they volu- you know, voluntarily, quote unquote, participated in the acts. And I think that all of the dynamics that we think about with vict- not only victimization, but the dynamics for people with disabilities in Um, you know, whether or not they feel like they have choice in life every day and not just regarding sexual behavior. So I think all of those sort of power and control dynamics that can exist between, you know, staff or caretakers in this population can play into all of this when we think about the the suspects or the perpetrators of these acts and how they could potentially exploit some of those relationships or behaviors that they know and how that's, I think that's the one when I'm, when I think about capacity to consent that people probably talk about the most is the, is the piece that you just mentioned, which is why I think it's important for people to understand that there are multiple layers to this. And it's not just as simple as, you know, was it okay? Not okay. Did the person understand what was going on? Yeah, for sure. And and we it's it's really, you know, it's hard because we want to protect people, but it just can't come down to is I don't think that person should be having sex or I don't want them having sex. So how, sort of in a, I guess, a summary wrap up, how, how what's the best sort of approach for assessing capacity? We'll try to get somebody who knows what they're doing um, or at least, you know, kind of um, reach out to people who have done this before. Uh, and then review records, uh, you know, do a record review, uh, information about, you know, reproductive ability, any psychiatric or psychological records, school records, and any information about sexual education, previous sexual behavior, and things like that. Talking with people who know or work with the individual being assessed, right, parents, siblings, staff members, if it, the individual's at a residential provider agency, and then really interviewing the person, evaluating their mental status, identifying information about their relevant knowledge, rationality, and voluntariness. Um, you know, some of the concepts that we talked about in operational definitions hopefully would be helpful here. But those are those are the things that you want to do because it's a, you know, it's a it's a big deal, right? We're talking about somebody's safety. We're talking about somebody's rights. And uh, we want to make sure that we, we uh, what am I going to say? Something, Courtney, now, like put our best foot forward, right? It seems so ill-suited for something so serious. But yeah, that's ultimately what we want to do. Well, and the other piece of it is we want to make sure that we're not, you know, accusing or charging people of things that, that they're not 
that they didn't do right so it's you know it's as much as it's protecting the rights of people and their voluntariness if you will we also don't want to be saying that someone's a criminal when they're not because if someone has disabilities and they have capacity to consent they don't you know just because they have disabilities doesn't automatically make the other person you know a suspect or doesn't mean that a crime occurred either so it it really is protecting both sides i think of this this issue which is important it is and i would say uh, i out of the 10 or so of these that I've done, not all of them go to trial. I would say I had one, I really couldn't make a determination one way or the other. And the others were pretty clear. Um, and it was a pretty good mix, I would say, of capacity. Yes, I, I you know, opined that the person did have capacity. Um, and and I'd say maybe the other half were that they uh, did not. And again, uh, just because somebody has capacity doesn't mean that a crime didn't occur. You're just assessing the element of capacity. We want to make sure we do that right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Thanks for answering those questions, Scott, about uh, about capacity. Well, Be- hopefully, uh, sorry, Stace, go ahead. Well, I was going to just, I was going to mention another word. I was going to say that I know that a lot of time people, um, people talk about capacity and they mix it up with competency. So I was hoping we could talk about the difference between those two terms. So it depends on what we mean by competency. So there's in the, in the perpetrator side, there's competency to stand trial. So there's very few people in the United States who uh, do competency to stand trial for adults with intellectual disabilities. So that's a whole different thing, um, much more complex than nuanced. Maybe another podcast, maybe not. But those, um, and then there's, there's probably some similarities. So that's why during this podcast, I was trying to be very specific when we're talking about capacity. And I was saying specifically to sexual consent. Because... Th- we don't want to mix up these terms. And that's why I just wanted to mention that that at the end, because I've heard things like, you know, competency versus capacity and just making sure that everyone's on the same page with what do these terms mean? We shouldn't be using them interchangeably because they're intended for different populations. And so that was uh, that was the other piece that I just wanted to make sure we talked about today. Yeah. So, you know, good FI skills in general. Let's not let the they or it go too long. Let's just make sure we're really being specific about what we're talking about. Agree. Well, hopefully this was a valuable podcast for you. And uh That's it. Well, I think you cleared up a lot of things that are going to be very helpful to our listeners. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Stace.